0: I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Kenneth M. Pollock is our guest, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He specializes in the political-military affairs of the Middle East and previously served as a Persian Gulf military analyst at the CIA and director for Persian Gulf affairs at the National Security Council. His most recent book is entitled Unthinkable, Iran, the Bomb, and American Strategy, and it is also uh, out on paperback. Welcome back to Kenneth M. Pollock. Glad to have him back uh, on the show. Hey, Kenneth, good afternoon. Happy Tuesday. Hope you had a nice holiday. Weekend.
1: Thanks, Leslie. It's good to be back. And, yeah, we had a very nice one. I hope you did as well.
0: Thank you. Yes, I, I, I did. Sometimes it's nice just to chill and unplug and, you know, just uh, get away from it all for a bit. Um, but one of the things we can't get away from is the cycle of winning territory uh, and then setbacks as we've had recently with regard to fighting ISIS over swaths of territory, whether it be in Syria, but more so, more specifically, uh, in Iraq. I was reading today um, that the the Pentagon was was you know really shocked at this latest one, and that and that's the fall of Ramadi. Um, A lot of people say, hey, but, you know, we killed a leader in Syria. Others say, no, this setback was a a bigger problem, and this is a huge setback, not just for Iraq, but the United States as well. Um, So first of all, do you think that the Pentagon, the United States, uh, and even Iraq to a degree were blindsided by the fall of uh, uh, Ramadi to ISIS?
1: Yeah, I think that it was certainly surprising to a lot of people. Um, you know, both the folks out in Iraq, and I think even more so than that, uh, the global media, the global community. I think it had really convinced themselves that uh, the war in Iraq had turned a corner. Right, we had passed the turning point, and now it was going to be kind of a series of. Uh, iraqi victories that would eventually drive isis out of iraq and it was just a question of how long right some people saying it was going to be shorter some people saying it was longer and so i think that uh... what happened in ramadi was kind of a shock because all of a sudden it was another isis victory which was very unexpected i would simply say that i think that everybody who had that impression that it was now just a matter of kind of a you know, matter of time. we'd turn the corner. I think that that was all premature because we need to remember that the, the Iraqis are in a very fragile state, both militarily and politically. And the United States hasn't committed the kind of resources to this fight that would guarantee that everything was going to be smooth sailing from here on out. Uh, this is not World War II, where we mobilized our entire economy, right? And after the battles of, of Midway and, and El Alamein and, and Stalingrad, it, it all went the Allies' way. This is always going to be a much harder fight.
0: And speaking of uh, that fight, there are not just uh, uh, Ramadi, but uh, also, and forgive my pronunciation if I'm saying it wrong, but uh, Palmyra or Palmyra and uh, Syria. Um, that uh, two major cities that ISIS has taken over frontline did a special on how they profiled in a sense the Pentagon having no plan for when ISIS took Mosul last summer do you think Mm -hmm. that you know we should learn from our mistakes and obviously with this takeover we or the Pentagon have not
1: uh, yeah, well, obviously we should learn from our mistakes, and of course it is very frustrating that, uh, that we keep repeating them rather than learning from them. Um, I will say that uh, there were certainly those elements within the military who, before the fall of Mosul, were very frightened about ISIS and what was going on in Iraq. I can remember having conversations with them. But it certainly is the case that I think the U.S. government wasn't uh, really aware of what was going on there and was blindsided by it. Um, but, you know, this gets into this this very big question, Leslie, which I've dealt with both from an intelligence side and a policy side of, you know, what, what really is the problem here? Is it an intelligence failure? Is it a policy failure? Because one can make the case that I don't think that the U.S. intelligence community was, was really warning uh, the policymakers of just how bad the situation had gotten in Iraq um, and the potential for civil war there. By the same token, I think that the policymakers really didn't want to hear it. Uh, they wanted to believe that iraq was going fine that the u.s really didn't want to make much more of a commitment to it so i see problems with both in there and it's hard for me to blame you know just one or the other
0: um I, I you you wrote a great piece entitled iraq after the fall of ramadi how to ramadi excuse me how to avoid another unraveling of iraq you also talk about how this doesn't have to be catastrophic and that it could prove to be a wake-up call, not just for Washington but to Baghdad. What, what do Washington and Baghdad need to wake up to would be my, my first question. And the second question is, do, are people concentrating on the wrong thing, which is how much territory ISIS is gaining, which is what can occur as a result of it, which you, you talk about in your title to this piece, which is the unraveling of Iraq?
1: Um, Yeah, I'll start with the second part of your question first. The the first part is the bigger question, which maybe we can come to in a minute. Um, And and my bottom line point there is, look, the fall of Ramadi is politically significant. It's actually not terribly militarily significant. It really doesn't heighten the risk. To Baghdad or most other places. It, it puts a town called Habaniya at greater risk. And in fact, Habaniya is already under attack by ISIS. But it's very hard to see Ramadi becoming the, the start of another massive ISIS offensive. That's highly unlikely. It, it needs to be a wake-up call because, politically, both the United States and the Iraqis have gotten badly distracted. Again, what you saw in both Washington and Baghdad uh, in the last five or six months was increasingly this perspective, which I already alluded to, that the war is pretty much won, right? You know, We've turned a corner. ISIS can't do much. They're on the defensive. It's just a matter of time before we defeat them. And in Washington, what that meant was a sense of, well, we really don't have to do that much more for Iraq. Everything is well in hand. We're providing enough military support. And now it's just up to the Iraqis to make things work out. And in Baghdad, what you saw was people increasingly just squabbling over what was going to happen after the defeat of ISIS, um, because that was already assumed. It was a foregone conclusion without recognizing that now ISIS have, still has a lot of fight left in them. Now, in terms of, of what more needs to happen in this issue of the wake-up call, you know, what I'd say there is that the peace that both the Iraqis and the Americans have really neglected...
0: Okay, hold on, Kenneth. We're going to do a yeah. cliffhanger there. We'll- Kenneth M. Pollock, most recent book, Unthinkable, Iran, the Bomb, and the Amer- American Strategy excuse me, I added a D the there, Kevin, uh, Kevin. Uh, and changed your name, uh, and American Strategy. <laughs> this is what happens when you're doing too much during the break and talking to too many people. Uh, unthinkable, Around the Bomb, and American Strategy. It's out on paperback. Get it. Great book. Kenneth is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We're talking about not just a piece he wrote, but the information behind the piece, which is entitled to Rack After the Fall. Of Ramadi, how to avoid another unraveling of Iraq. So let's come back to that cliffhanger that we had uh, before the break, Kenneth, (laughs) because I know there are a lot of people that are waiting to hear, as I am, uh, the rest of what you had to say.
1: The real key piece here, Leslie, the piece that I think the United States and the Iraqi government have both been rather lax about is the political dimension. Uh, and let me start by saying that there certainly is more that can and should be done on the military side. I think that we should be doing more to arm the Sunnis, doing more to, to build and, and retrain the Iraqi armed forces, expanding our air campaign. All of that would be very helpful. But the real piece that's missing is political reconciliation among the Iraqis. This is what changed the course of events back in 2007, 2008 with the surge. That's what, what, whenever there has been a successful end to a civil war, that is the critical ingredient. You've got to convince the Sunni and the Shia to come to a new reconciliation about what power is going to look like. And, And think about it from the side of the Sunnis, right? We keep talking about how we need to get Sunnis in the fight. Well, the feeling among the Sunnis is the political system in 2011 went completely. Completely off the rails. You had a Shia uh, prime minister in Nouri al-Maliki who became a Shia dictator, oppressed them. And so what they're asking is, what's going to be different if we fight for Iraq? What kind of an Iraq are we fighting for? And the, just the complete neglect of that political peace is why you have so few Sunnis willing to fight for this government. And until that changes, it's going to be very difficult to defeat ISIS. And quite frankly, it's going to be very difficult to end the civil war. Because even if somehow you drove ISIS out of Iraq, if you don't explain to the Sunnis what, how Iraq is going to be better for them, they'll keep fighting. They'll fight the Shia because they don't want to go back to the dictatorship of Nur al-Maliki.
0: It's interesting you say that because I was talking to somebody who had done a business in, and not in the military, but a private business in Iraq. And uh, this individual knew Iraq very well, and he said what the world outside of Iraq, and you have done uh, just this, uh, what they can't wrap their head around, but what you can, Kenneth, is that a Sunni is not going to fall on their sword for a Shia, exactly. and, 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 that, and that's part of the problem is that we have – and some people are like, I don't understand. Why do they sign up? They have huge desertion uh, numbers. And this is one of the reasons is the fragmentation, not just of the military, but the fragmentation of the overall society. And this fragmentation can date back to what, 400 B.C. or something?
1: Well, I mean, Islam was founded in 622, and I guess, you know, if you want to put a number on it, the Battle of Karbala in 680 AD is the start of the real split. But, you know, what we've seen, Leslie, is that Sunni and Shia can live together fine in all kinds of places. I mean, before we invaded Iraq in 2003, 40% of the population of Baghdad, and Baghdad is about a quarter of the population of Iraq, 7 million people, 40% of that populace was either the product of a mixed Sunni-Shia. Marriage or in a mixed Sunni Shia marriage. And I can't tell you how many Iraqi friends of mine refer to themselves as sushis because they're half yes. Sunni, half Shia. Um, so you know, it is entirely possible. And even in 2008, 2009, when you had a power sharing arrangement forged by the United States uh, and things were going really quite well in Iraq, the Sunni and Shia were getting along really quite well. The problem is that, you know, when we withdrew our troops in two thousand eleven, Nori Al Maliki, who was Paranoid uh, went after the Sunnis, believing that they were coming for him, completely alienated the Sunni community. And, you know, the Sunni feeling now is kind of, you know, once burned, twice shy, right? We, we've seen this before. Uh, we formed a power-sharing arrangement. You guys walked away, and the Shia went crazy and, and oppressed us. So tell us what's going to be different this time around. And, again, I think that there is an answer to that question. And, and Prime Minister Haider Abadi, I think, really does understand what needs to happen and is trying in his own way to make it happen. But a lot more needs to be done, a lot more to convince the Sunnis to try it one more time.
0: And and then we have convincing of Sunnis. We also have convincing of Kurds. I mean, because right. ha- there's been in Iraq, as you know, an oppression of whoever is not in power. And it's not necessarily right. a minority group, although the Kurds are certainly in numbers. Um, but, you know, the Sunnis aren't necessarily in numbers at all. So, again, what you speak to is even though government leaders are, you know, this government leader is doing a, you know, a better job, at the end of the day, this is a very, and rightly so, I, I believe, non-trusting segment of its population based on the history of uh, former government leaders.
1: Exactly. And and first of all, again, this is exactly what you see in all these kinds of civil wars. It was exactly the problem that NATO was wrestling with in Bosnia and that the UN was wrestling with in Cambodia. Civil war after civil war, this is exactly what you see happening. Uh, And so it's, it's a question of how do you overcome this mistrust? which you know which is the driving force in Iraq today and both you know historically in terms of other civil wars and also historically in terms of Iraq you know what you found is that it requires an outsider to act as both mediator to kind of forge that new power sharing arrangement and also to serve as kind of a peacekeeping force and the peacekeeping force doesn't have to be big and it doesn't have to be bad um, but it has to be there to rebuild that trust and you know, right now, nobody's really talking about doing those things. And it's why I sometimes cringe when I hear the administration talking about this is just a war against ISIS. Uh, because what we need to recognize, and it's kind of inherent in everything that both you and I have been saying, ISIS really isn't the problem in Iraq. ISIS is a symptom of the problem. They've come in and taken advantage of this deep rift between the Sunnis and Shia and is taking advantage of it. And the right answer, as we saw, again, back in 2007, 2008, is to heal the rift. If you heal the rift, the Iraqis will get rid of ISIS exactly the way that they did with ISIS's predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, you know, in 2006, al-Qaeda in Iraq was running amok. By 2009, after you had had the surge and the Anbar awakening and this power-sharing agreement and all that kind of other stuff, by 2009, al-Qaeda in Iraq is a bunch of guys hiding in caves trying desperately to stay relevant. So we got to put our emphasis on, on really where the root causes lie. And the root causes here are in this mistrust and the civil war that it's bred between Sunni and Shia. And again, deal with that, and, and al-Qaeda and ISIS will follow. But if you just try to beat the heck out of ISIS, you're not going to make the problem better. In fact, you could make it a lot worse.
0: And, and, if, and if anything, ISIS is taking advantage of this very problem. I mean, one thing exactly. people don't understand, you know, ISIS uh, – when you look at its followers versus its leadership, the leadership are not a bunch of dumb Bedouins that live in tents in the desert. Uh, many of them are highly educated, come from affluent families, and you know lived and grew up in a Western uh, society. Right. There's a you know there's a you know there are Americans, and certainly one American in particular at the uh, uh, you know high up and at the helm is a you know uh, a very uh, educated, very uh, wealthy, and uh, very intelligent Brit. Um, and, and let, us talk about that. I want to ask mm-hmm. you a question and I'm sorry if this sounds almost, uh, lame, Kenneth, for lack of a better term, but <laughs> I, I, I know, but I ask this because of what we're talking about with regard to the people, the fragmentation, the leadership of the government current and past and ISIS, because the question keeps coming up and was even posed, um, to Jeb Bush by a student, which was, did our invasion of Iraq? And our killing of Saddam Hussein create ISIS. In other words, if Saddam Hussein were in power today, and none of us have hindsight crystal balls either, but would ISIS and their level of power and what's taking place there in Iraq today be far less likely from happening? Sort of. You know, I, I,
1: want, I really want to avoid the politics on this, because I know Democrats have their answer and Republicans have their answer. And you know, what I see as as a historian, as an expert on this country, is uh little bits and pieces of both. Um ISIS, well Al Qaeda really didn't exist in Iraq in two thousand three. Um what opened the door to Al Qaeda was less the invasion per se, and, and where I think we really have to focus our criticism of the Bush administration, which is the completely mishandled reconstruction of Iraq. And I think that that's a non-political thing to say. I think there's no way around uh, the, the recognition that the Bush administration, whatever its rationale for war, could not have handled the reconstruction, the occupation of Iraq worse than it actually did between 2003 and 2006. Um, it did not properly secure the country, it created a security vacuum. That gave rise to a civil war, which allowed al-Qaeda to to flourish inside of Iraq. And had either we not invaded or had we handled the occupation differently, I don't think that that would have happened. And, again, I think that the proof of that was from 2007 to 2009, when the Bush administration finally did come around and do the right thing with the Anbar awakening and the surge strategy and General Petraeus's population security and everything that Ryan Crocker did, all the things that the experts were saying should have been done right from the beginning. As I said, the moment that that happened, you know, Al-Qaeda found itself on the rocks very quickly. Um, so clearly, the, the failed occupation and reconstruction of Iraq did open the door to them. But as I said, Al-Qaeda really is in desperate shape in Iraq by 2009, 2010. And then, of course, when the United States disengages from Iraq in 2010, 2011, that once again opens the door to them because it recreates the fear and the mistrust, it allows Nur al-Maliki to kind of go crazy, uh, which alienates the Sunni community again, and reignites the civil war. And then ISIS, which we should remember, ISIS is the son of AQI. ISIS was born of the remnants of al-Qaeda in Iraq when yep. they fled Iraq into Syria, into its civil war, used the civil war in Syria to, to regrow, and then came back into Iraq. To exploit its civil war. So it's a combination of all of that history. And for that reason, I don't think you can necessarily blame one uh, one administration over another unless you want to just start by saying that, look, the original sin was the Bush administration's decision to start down this path at all. Uh, I guess that's a fair point. But again, I think that the, the evidence suggests that had the Bush administration handled the Reconstruction very differently, you still might not have gotten into this situation.
0: I I, I want to um, also talk about some of the things that you um, discussed at length in your piece and obviously an abbreviated version of that uh, here uh, due to time. I like the fact that in your piece especially uh, you put the fall uh, of Ramadi in perspective and you talk about this not being new. And you also talk about what the Iraqi security forces did not do because I think a lot of people – when they read the headline and the first few lines in an article, which many people do and don't read the whole thing, you know through, have the idea, have the idea that the Iraqi security forces did what they did, many did uh, in uh, June mm-hmm. of last year, which right. is you know they were just like you know I'm dropping my guns. And, you know, they said, I'm out of here. And they ran faster than hell to get as far away as quick as possible. And, and that really was not the case. They've held their defensive positions not far outside the city limits, correct? Right,
1: right, exactly. And I think that's a very important thing to recognize, which is that, first of all, they were battling for Ramadi for close to 18 months, um, maybe, what, 16 months. Uh, uh, ISIS first attacked Ramadi in December. Of 2013, and at that point in time, they conquered Fallujah. They were only able to take the suburbs of Ramadi, and they've been fighting for Ramadi ever since. So this isn't really a sudden surprise attack tactically, right? I think they did, you know, they did some very clever things in terms of suicide bombings, etc. That caught the Iraqis by surprise. But this is a fight that's been going on for 18 months, and for most of that 18 months, the Iraqi army was fighting fiercely and holding their ground. And they did... Uh, abandoned Ramadi last week. But again, what was interesting is they didn't just, as you pointed out, they didn't just drop their weapons and run away and take off their uniforms and kind of blend into the civilian population. They withdrew from Ramadi and took up tactical positions several miles away. Now, again, that's not good. That's, I think, exactly what uh, Secretary of Defense Carter uh, was complaining about when he said that he felt like the Iraqis had lost the will to fight. Uh, But nevertheless, as, as General Dempsey pointed out, they didn't just run away. They didn't just flee. Uh, they withdrew. And again, that suggests a, a greater degree of commitment and cohesiveness than we saw from them about a year ago. And, you know, it's small progress, but it's something, and we need to keep all of that in perspective.
0: Well, let's quickly uh, take a call, and uh, we go to Kevin in Santa Fe on Line 5. Kevin, quickly, a uh, question or comment for our I don't guest. know
1: if you noticed an article by Scott Ritter which firmly placed the root of all this in the in Wahhabism, which is a sect of Islam. That's that,
0: what that's what those in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, uh, practice. Uh, they don't practice Wahhabism uh, that much in Iraq, right? And to in and, uh, please uh, call her. Uh, anything else to your question? Due to time, I'm just trying to rush it, Kevin. Uh, okay, Kenneth, uh, hey. I think you've got his question that this is because sure. the root is based yeah. on Wahhabism.
1: Wahhabism is a, it's a version of Salafi Islam. Salafi just means fundamentalist, and it is true that ISIS also practices a version of Salafi Islam. Um, what I'll simply say is that while there certainly are some people who are attracted to ISIS because of this Salafi religious fundamentalism, again, bigger thing going on is the Civil War, and we should remember that they've gotten thousands and thousands of recruits from Iraq and Syria, because they're simply Sunnis who want to fight against the Shia, and ISIS is the most potent Sunni force fighting against the Shia. That's one of the reasons why Ramadi was important. That's you know another piece of the, the essay that I wrote, pointing out that it's important psychologically, because it looked like ISIS was on the ropes, and now this victory for them all of a sudden kind of reinflates their psychological profile.
0: Thank you for being with us. We'll definitely have you on again. Great piece that you wrote, and I hope people will get your book, which is also terrific. Thank you for being with us, and uh, hope you uh, once again had a great weekend. Kenneth M. Pollock, Sr. Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Again, his most recent book is Unthinkable, Iran, the Bomb, and American Strategy. It is out on paperback, so pick up a copy. Uh, we have summer upon us, and everybody needs some great stuff to read, whether you're on uh, vacation sitting by the pool, staycation, sitting in your backyard, or on that plane, or waiting in Long Line Somewhere. Uh, And uh, once again, that book, Unthinkable Around the Bomb in American Strategy. I'm Leslie Marshall.